My first job was at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Could you imagine me behind the doors cooking your chicken? Well, that was my first job at 15 years of age. And after a few weeks of cooking chicken, I didn't figure that that was going to be the trajectory for the rest of my life. So I thought, well, I'm going to look for a new job. And I moved on to McDonald's. So I started working at McDonald's. And so Kentucky Fried Chicken McDonald's were my first two jobs. And my major goal in life when I started working was to buy a stereo system. I wanted a stereo system for my room, and I had two requirements for that stereo system. One is big speakers. It had to have very big speakers. Second, it had to have a lot of knobs that controlled a lot of lights. And so I wanted a lot of lights, a lot of knobs, and very big speakers. Well, if you're working at McDonald's for minimum wage, it could take a career to buy a stereo system. But uh, I saved my money up, and, uh, and lo and behold, over time, I was able to go to Orlando, Florida, went to a stereo shop. I bought a stereo. I took it home. I set it up. Big speakers, probably, uh, probably this tall, as Jeff Eliff would say, about up to my head. And so, you know, about as tall as I was, and I got, uh, got it all set up, and you start turning those knobs and ramping up the volume, and you've got these lights going up and down, and I thought, man, this is phenomenal. This is fantastic. And you've got to listen to soft rock, 70 soft rock, kind of loud to make it loud, but I could get that 70 soft rock, Fleetwood Mac Eagles, and if I was really on edge, Led Zeppelin, and I could get that noise moving, the windows begin to shake in my room and I my mom I can remember you're gonna need to turn it down honey and I said uh, mom I just got it and she said I'm not telling I tell you, you got to turn it down and so I'd bring it down just a little bit and I'd watch those lights flicker down just a little bit my heart would just sink and uh, it was a it was a phenomenal uh, success as far as I was concerned big speakers a lot of lights a lot of knobs I, I didn't know how the knobs connected to the lights I didn't know what bass from treble was. I just knew if I turned those knobs enough, there were lights coming up on that, uh, on that stereo. And I wanted it to be good and I wanted it to be loud. Well, we're starting a series today called Amplify. And Amplify is a is series about increasing the volume of gospel conversations that we as believers have in order to, to raise the, the volume up about the glory of God in a, in a world that needs to hear good news. And so you can see the, the images that we're projecting here is something of an, of an amplifier. But the idea in the term amplify, it is really a biblical thought. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians very quickly. 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing in chapter 1 to the church at Thessalonica. And he had started the church at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He was with them for a couple of months and then he had to leave town because of persecution. So he's writing to them, he's writing to encourage them, he's writing to edify them, he's writing to exhort them. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul wrote, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. The word of the Lord was amplified out of Thessalonica. The word of the Lord was ringing out and echoing out from Thessalonica about all the good things that God was doing among those small, uh, the, the small number of believers in the relatively new church start in Thessalonica. 
So as we think about Amplify, we're thinking about increasing the noise that comes from us congregationally. Rising the tide just a little bit in gospel conversations. Jesus was concerned about it himself. In fact, in the passage that we're going to read and study this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it's a passage that probably all of us have read before. Many of us have memorized. All of us are very familiar with the words of Jesus, but I think we need to be reminded this morning that Jesus wants us to rise and shine and bring the glory of God into a world filled with moral and spiritual darkness. And so beginning in chapter 5 and verse 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, it cannot be made salty again. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said two things about us. He says, first, you are salt, and secondly, we are light. He didn't just say we are salt. He says, we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. What does Jesus mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? Well, in antiquity, the Greeks thought of salt in almost a divinity kind of way. It was sparkling. It was shiny. In some ways, it was effervescent. And so they often associated salt with divinity. The Romans would often pay their soldiers with salt. So a soldier that didn't perform his duty very well wasn't worth his salt. Even in our own day, we use it metaphorically. We say about a certain person, you know, she's the salt of the earth, which means she's a down-to-earth person. She's a good-hearted person. She's a person that, that's easy to relate to and interact with, just a, a salt-of-the-earth kind of, of person. So salt uh, raises several images and ideas in our minds. Uh, but I want us to think about it a little bit more strategically and a, and a little bit more pointedly. Uh, I want to note first that the salt was valued for seasoning. You'll hear people in our own day say, pass the salt. In Job chapter 6, verse 6, Job says, Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Salt adds a little bit of flavor, brings a little bit of zest. Sometimes we'll eat a meal and we're eating in a certain place and the food is kind of bland, it's kind of, it's kind of tasteless. And so we'll get a little bit of salt, maybe some pepper to add to it to bring out a little bit of zest and a, and a, and a, little, bit of, a little bit of flavor in it. When he says you are the salt of the earth, in one sense Jesus is saying we ought to bring a little bit of zest to living, a little bit of life where there's a sense of blandness and, uh, and, and, uh, and kind of a normalcy, we bring a little bit of joy, a little bit of flavor 
to the situations that we enter into. There's been a lot of studies done about why non-Christian people don't attend church. A lot of their responses, I think, really hold no water if they've ever really been to church. For example, one of the reasons they say they never go to church is that all churches are interested in is money. All they want is your money. All they talk about is money. Every week, the sermons are filled with a request and plea for money. Now, they may be watching television evangelists, but I don't think they're going to very many evangelical churches week in and week out, churches that are preaching and teaching through the Bible, and they hear the churches making an inordinate amount of request for money. Uh, something else they say, a uh, reason that they don't, um, don't regularly attend churches, all they talk about is hell. They talk about death and judgment and hell. And every sermon is hellfire and brimstone. And every sermon they're trying to coerce and manipulate people and move their emotions to get them to walk down the aisle. They're trying to, to, to cause them to flee into heaven by running away from hell. And again, I don't, just don't think that that holds water. I don't think people who go to regular evangelical churches, churches that are preaching through the Bible, are trying to manipulate people into heaven by trying to, trying to coerce them about the dangers of hell. Now, the Bible talks about hell, and when the Bible talks about hell, it would be wrong for us not to talk about hell. But I don't think in good, solid, Bible-believing churches they're using hell as an arm-twisting device to get people to join the church. But I think the, the third reason might have some credence to it. And the third reason is that Christians seem to be overly somber. Uh, they, they don't seem to have much laughter and joy and lightheartedness in their life. And, and when we go to the church from beginning to end, sometimes it's a, it's a lot like a funeral dirge. And the people that are there don't seem like they want to be there. And the people that are singing don't seem like they enjoy what they're singing. And there may be some truth in that. Maybe that there are churches where that's genuinely, actually true. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, we ought to be the kind of people that add a little bit of zest, a, a little bit of flavor wherever we're at, whatever we're, whatever we're doing. So in, in one sense, it's a, it's a flavoring. Hey, please pass the salt. A second way that Jesus might be speaking of it is, in the ancient world, it was a symbol for purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He, he mentions purity of heart just in the previous verses. And the idea here is salt that isn't pure isn't good for much. Nobody wants to add salt to their food if, it's, if it is uh, being mixed with dirt or grime or something that's, something that's impure. And so when he says you're the salt of the earth, he's saying be a pure people, be a holy people. I think maybe there's a sense in which Jesus is saying that. A third way that I think that maybe Jesus is using it is that it creates a thirst. Salt makes us thirsty. Uh, you know this to be true. If food is overly salty, then, then you want to follow it up with a, with a drink. Last night, Late, uh, we were heading home from the, from the hospital visiting uh, and spending time with our, our new granddaughter, Lila Joy. And so we had had a, a long day and we hadn't had dinner. We had eaten lunch very early that day. And, and so uh, we sat uh, in the NICU with the baby while uh, 
Paul and Laura went to, went to eat. And so when they got back and we spent a little bit more time with them, uh, we decided, well, it's time we need to go on home and, and need to get ready for, uh, for in the morning. So it's dark. Jaylen's driving on the way home. She says, what would you like to eat? And, and so it's, it's kind of late. So I said, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you want, it'd be fine. And she says, well, you know, I, and she hadn't been feeling very well. She said, I think I'm going to have cream of wheat tonight. Well, I said, all right, that, that sounds all right. I'll have cream of wheat. And, and I think she read through my, through my disappointment. And I said, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to have cream of wheat. She said, no, let's stop and get you something. So I said for a third time, no, cream of wheat will be fine. She said for a second time, let's stop and get you something. Now, if she says it twice, that's like the law of the Medes and the Persians for me. That means <laughs> I can stop and get something. Okay, so I've got running through my mind. These options don't come up very many times. And so I said, how about McDonald's? I like to stop at McDonald's. Well, she's driving. She doesn't think I can see across the car, but she rolls her eyes. I know she's rolling her eyes. And she said, all right, we'll, we'll stop at McDonald's. And so we pull up and, and I know that if I order a Big Mac, she's just going to drive right on off. And so I've got to be strategic. And so I say, okay, uh, how about a couple of hamburgers and, and a small fry? And so she says, all right. She orders a couple of hamburgers and fry, and, and she's getting ready to drive off. She said, you know, I saw on the menu, which I, I couldn't read. She saw on the menu, I see they have a, have, a, have a small Big Mac. And I said, they've got a small Big Mac? I knew if I were the Big Mac, it was out of the question. And I said, why didn't you tell me? You know, I can't see the, I can't see the, the board that's got the words on it. She just said, I guess it just didn't cross my mind. And so... <laughs> I know she likes French fries occasionally. She's kind of persnickety about, uh, about he- eating healthy. And so when I got my food, we're only a couple of miles away from the McDonald's, maybe really actually about a mile from the McDonald's. It's a blessing in disguise. And, and so uh, we're on our way home. And so I know she likes those French fries and I know she doesn't feel good. I know she's not going to eat any French fries. So I'm, I'm holding those French fries up and saying, man, they're hot, they're salty, they taste delicious. And uh, she doesn't turn her head. She just keeps, uh, keeps uh, uh, getting home. And so we get, I've eaten all the French fries by, by the time we make the two and a half minute drive home. And, and she says, where are you headed? I said, I've got to get a drink. I mean, I'm very thirsty. Well, you know, salt causes us to be thirsty. And wherever we are, whatever we do, we're in a world that, that people are looking for something. And our contact with them should make them thirsty for what we have they might not be able to articulate it Uh, they're good people and they love their spouse but they they see how you speak about your spouse they 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 watch how you interact with your spouse if he or she picks you up at the job and they realize you know I've got a pretty good relationship with my wife but it's not a relationship like they've got And they love their kids just like we love our kids. But they've never had the training from the book of Proverbs about child rearing that we've had. They've never read Dobson or Rainey on child rearing. They're doing the best they can, having come maybe from a broken home or a dysfunctional home. They're trying to do the best they can, but they watch how you handle your kids at the company picnic. They, they watch how you interact with your children when they do right and when they do wrong as you're standing at the fence talking with your neighbor. And they, they realize there's something about their parenting that draws me in. That's what salt does. Salt makes non-Christian people thirsty for Jesus. It causes, us to have a, it causes them to have a desire to 
drink from the well of living water. It's also a preservative. That is, in the ancient world, the fishermen would fish at night so that they could sell the fish during the morning market hours. But as they were cleaning up and getting ready, they would often cover those fish with salt because it was a preservative. And the only way to get it from from the Sea of Galilee to wherever they were taking it, sometimes as far away as, as Jerusalem, which was quite a journey... They had to be covered in salt. They had to be, they had to be drenched in salt. They had, to, they had to, in a sense, soak in salt to preserve decay from, from setting in. And God wants us to be a preservative in our nation. If we're waiting for the Republicans or the Democrats to be the preservative of our nation, we, we've got our heads screwed on wrongly. The only preservative for our nation is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now often we, we, we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and the debauchery there and, and, uh, and we think in some ways, rightly so, Sodom and Gomorrah got exactly what it deserved and we're headed like Sodom and Gomorrah and we're probably going to get the same thing. But you know what? Sodom and Gomorrah, was not, they were not destroyed because of the debauchery of the irreligious. They were destroyed because God couldn't find 10 righteous people. He couldn't find 10 righteous people. If I find 10, he tells him, if I find 10, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And there he scoured the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he couldn't find 10 righteous people. Maybe he's saying salt is a preservative. Salt causes thirst. Salt exemplifies purity. Salt brings about a a flavor and a zest that seems to be absent when the believer in in the office isn't there. God wants us to be the salt of the earth. Now, if that's true, let me give you two two additional thoughts. The first is this. We've got to stay in touch with people. Salt doesn't work if it doesn't come into contact with food. It's not a preservative if it, doesn't, if it doesn't come into contact with the meat. It doesn't add flavor if it's not added to the stew. That is, salt must be in contact with that which it's to change, and we must be in contact with those that we want to influence. We've got to stay in touch with our culture. We need to be in touch with people. Secondly... We've got, to remain, we've got to remain distinctive. We've got to remain holy and different. We've got, we've got to con- come into contact with people, but we can't allow them to influence us. We should influence them. That's the warning that he gives there at the end of verse 13. He says, if the salt becomes unsalty. Well, salt is always salt. Uh, you can't change the chemical makeup of salt. But if it becomes contaminated, if it begins to compromise the faith, if it begins to look like other people look, talk like other people talk, enjoy the worldliness that they enjoy, it brings compromise to our faith and we lose our distinctive voice for the gospel. Uh, But let let me add just a third thought here. This week as I was meditating on these verses again and thinking about them again, I was praying for myself and I was praying, Lord, give me a, a, give me a greater love for people. 
Give me a greater love for my neighbors and and the people across the street. And give me a greater love when I'm at the soccer games for the people that are are watching their children play soccer as I'm cheering on my my grandchildren. Give me a greater love. And and what, what the Lord brought to my mind was I didn't need a greater love for people. I needed a greater love for Jesus. It wasn't that I didn't love people enough. The problem is, the more I love Jesus, the more I want to make Jesus known. And then if it means going across the world to being a missionary, the problem isn't that I need to love the Ugandans or the Ecuadorians. I need to love Jesus enough that I would go to Uganda or Ecuador or Malaysia or wherever it might be. I need to love Jesus enough that I'll stand at the fence and interact with my neighbor and communicate to my neighbor, hey, listen, and just in a, in a friendly, non-threatening kind of way, slowly over time raising, raising the volume of, of the gospel. He says you're the salt of the earth, but he also says you're the light of the world. What a beautiful image to say that, that we are the light of the world. You know, the sun is the light of the world in a physical sense. And when the sun is on the other side of the, of the earth, there's, there's the moon that illuminates the earth. But the moon doesn't have any light. The only way that the moon produces light is as it reflects the light of the sun. And so the shining of the moon is merely the reflection of the light of the sun. And, and it's much the same way for us in our relationship to God. God wants to shine through us. In Matthew, in, not Matthew, John chapter 8 verse 12. In John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then just to make sure the disciples got it, in chapter 9 verse 5, he said to them again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. And so he says twice, he's the light of the world. So as we follow him, he allows his light to resonate from us into the world that we live. It's a beautiful picture. Because light light does several things, the image of light. One thing light does is it tells us something about the spiritual condition of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen world. We live in a dark world. We live in a world where the God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. So here in this world, it needs light because it's in darkness. What do we do when we walk into a dark room? The first thing we do is we turn on the light. What do we do if we hear a we hear a noise downstairs? Well, we turn the light on in the bedroom and then we open the bedroom door and then we say, I'm getting my shotgun and coming down there. Well, we don't have a shotgun. So uh, I say to Jaylen, get the bat and if, if you need me, call me. And so she, she'll take the bat and go, down, uh, go downstairs in a heartbeat, particularly if the grandchildren are there. She's not that worried about me. She might shove me down the stairs. But we, we look for light. We, we look for a way to, uh, to find where we're wanting to go without stumbling in the darkness. See, Jesus is teaching us about the spiritual condition of the world that we live in. You may have the most wonderful grandmother in the entire world. She's kind and genuinely loving. And she loves you and has cared for you. And even as she has gotten older, and she's not able to do the things for you that she once did, there's no doubt that your grandmother loves you. When you visit her, she wants to fix your favorite meal. 
When you sit at the table, she wants to know everything about you and about her great-grandkids. She loves you. She's a genuinely good person. And she even wants to know about your church and about the kids at Vacation Bible School that that, uh, her great-grandchildren are going to. But talk with her about Jesus, and she doesn't know Jesus. She wouldn't be so rude and crass as to cut you off and to, and to push you away, but she has no interest in Jesus. That dear sweet lady is as much in spiritual darkness as the man selling crack cocaine around the corner from the church is in spiritual darkness. And so the God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. So Jesus is thinking, what kind of metaphor, what kind of image can I use to communicate to my people? I want them to illuminate the gospel message. He says, I'll use light. I'll use the image of light because people are in a fallen state of darkness. Uh, The second thing I want you to notice is when you live your life by God's power and for his glory... Your commitment to Christ will be evident. You won't be able to, you won't be able to hide it. A, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. When you do good things for Jesus, in the name of Jesus, it, be, it shines forth like a city set on a hill. The image of a city set on a hill, it doesn't mean much to us because our cities are filled with, with, uh, with street lights. But in the ancient world, without street lights... A city would often be strategically located on a hill for military purposes. A city on a hill was more easy to defend. It was strategically located. But it also provided a means of guidance for people that would travel at night. In the ancient world, the the heat of the Palestinian sun is and was excruciating. To travel during the day at times could be dangerous if you had to travel long distance. Unless you were well supplied. And so people would travel at night when the moon at times would be full and could illuminate the way for them. And as they got near the city, they could see off in a distance a city on a hill and on the the ledge of many, many homes would be be little candles filled with oil with a tiny wick and and they would be burning and and you would have a guidance, You you would have a goal, you would see where you were headed. A city set on a hill could not be hidden. When you live your life by God's power and for his glory, your commitment to Christ will be evident people will see what you do they won't be able maybe to articulate it as a gospel witness they may not be able to understand that you're slowly wanting to ramp up the volume of of gospel conversation but they'll recognize that what you're doing is an act of kindness and generosity and and um and love and that is a beautiful picture of good works See, good works are doing for Jesus what we would normally do for ourselves. We often think good works are preaching sermons and leading prayers and, and, uh, and uh, teaching in Bible fellowship groups or, or uh, working on the grounds. All of those are good works, but that's not exactly what he's talking about here. He's talking about the things that we do for Jesus that we normally do for ourselves that are intended to influence others. So a good work would be you've got a neighbor that's moved in next door. You notice that they've got, uh, they've got a, a number of children. And so you think, well, we're going to make some cookies. And uh, tonight we'll go over as a family. We'll just welcome into the neighborhood. And so they knock on the door. They come to the door and say, hey, I'm, I'm uh, Joe. And this is my wife, Susan. And Susan has made some, made some cookies. And, and uh, we just want you to know we're so glad you're here. 
Uh, we see that you've got, you've got a lot of children. We want you to know we love, we love children. If there is anything we can do for you, you just come next door. We're glad to do it, and uh, we want to help in any way we can. We look forward to getting to know you better. And listen, here, just take these, uh, take these cookies. It's just a, a welcome to the community. And so you go back to your house, you gather around the table, you hold hands with your kids and you say, kids, we're gonna pray that Jesus would use the cookies to let those people know that they've got good next door neighbors. And so you pray, you pray for them. And then over the next several days, you, you get to know them just a little bit better. And a week or two later, you, you knock on the door on a Tuesday night, say, listen, Saturday, we're having a little cookout. Hey, why don't you bring the kids over hot dogs, hamburgers? Don't worry about bringing anything. You're, you're new, you're unpacking. It's gonna just be uh, playing out in the backyard. We'll, we'll uh, play some games with the kids. I'll cook hamburgers. We'll eat out on the, on the back porch. How about it? And you're just, unbeknownst to them, kind of raising the intensity of your light, raising the, the volume, just a little bit of gospel witness. You haven't said anything about Jesus yet. Uh, you, you haven't brought out the four spiritual laws or talked about, hey, I need your money. You're worried about going to hell. You're not, you're not doing anything that, uh, that, that lost people say that the church is always wanting. You just say, come on over and have a meal. Let's just get to know one another a little bit better. Hey, their kids are a little bit rough, a little bit rowdy, a little bit undisciplined. Hey, they've never been raised in a Christian home. Mom and dad's never read Rainey Dobson. Uh, they, don't, they never heard of the book, The, the Strong-Willed Child. They love one another. They're trying to do the best for their kids they can do. And maybe it's going to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit difficult there as they're running around in the backyard through the flower bed. But you've got a bigger, you've got a bigger purpose in mind than protecting your flower bed. Your purpose is to raise the gospel light just a little bit. And so our light shines the brightest when we do our works for God's glory in the expansion of his kingdom. Let me give you a, some final thoughts. Uh, let me give you really four final thoughts. Some final lessons on being salt and light. The first one is this. God wants you, or maybe put it this way, God wants to use you to make a difference in this world. God wants to use you and me to make a difference in this world. We wonder, we look in the mirror and we think, I don't know how he could use me. Well, he is in the business of using imperfect people who are in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. He's in the business of using us for his glory. In fact, Jesus said on the, the night that he was betrayed, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He didn't say leave the world. He said go into the world. He just said don't become contaminated by the world. God wants to use you. He says you are the salt of the earth. See I've never had any evangelism training. He didn't say anything about evangelism training. He just said you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So God wants to use you and he wants to use me to make a difference in the world. Second, if you're going to be effective, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional. You've got to look at where you're located in life. And then you begin right there with family members and neighbors and coworkers. If your child's in kickball, you've got a kickball season. 
And so there you are at the kickball games or soccer games or basketball games, whatever they may be, you're going to be there probably cheering on a team with other parents whose kids are on that team, cheering them on. And so rather than just making it simply a, a, a time to cheer on the, on the kids, you say, okay, I've got 10 weeks, eight weeks, six weeks. I'm going to try and find a few opportunities to, go, uh, to have a gospel witness. So you're just standing by the dad and he's uh, snorting and, and, uh, and, uh, and yelling like a man who thinks he's uh, Pete Rose coaching the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, he's gambling on the side on his kid's six, uh, six-year-old kickball team and, and uh, he's just out of control almost. And you say, hey, I'm Bill. Which one of the guys out there are yours? Well, you've heard him cheer him and curse his little six-year-old like it's the Olympics or something. That's Steve out there. That's Steven's mind. I can't, I can't believe it. And look at the way he's playing. How, how long has he been playing? Well, this is his first game. And he's a good-looking kid. I mean, Steven looks like a good-looking young man. I, uh, I bet he's just a joy to your family. And, and you just begin to bring in opportunity week in, week out. You've got to be intentional. You've got to make those cookies that go next door. Uh, you got to walk across the street and say, hey, what you been doing to your lawn? It looks fantastic. you got to find ways to connect with people on an ordinary level where real people live. you got to get out of the Christian bubble. That's the danger of theological education. You get in that bubble, you can't get out. And when you get in that bubble, you don't want to get out. It's nice and calm and, and everybody's talking about atonement and soteriology. And it's the life. Jesus didn't live in that bubble. Jesus didn't live in the rabbinical bubble. Jesus lived in the real world. He wanted real world people talking about real world things to people who lived in spiritual darkness so that the people in light could bring gospel conversations to bear over time, bringing up the level of the line. But you've got to be intentional. Third, don't be surprised if he starts using you. Don't be surprised. Don't be stunned. It's his plan. It's his way. Say, Pastor, I mean, I've never been to Bible college. Phenomenal. That might be an advantage for you. You're able to relate to people in the real world. You know, you, you know exactly what life is like for them. You're out there living that world too. He could use you in ways that you could not fathom. You might not, you might not believe. He not only wants to use you, he will use you. But it's not having a bigger heart for people. It's just having a bigger heart for Jesus. And the bigger your heart is for Jesus, it just changes everything, doesn't it? It just changes the outlook. So as I'm praying this week, Lord, break my heart for lost people. He's saying, just love me more. Just love me more. Follow me more intentionally. Be more passionate about, about me. And as you love me and follow me and are passionate about me, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that the way that you look at the world changes. So instead of me thinking, well, I've got I've to wait until my heart is right toward people to minister to people, bigger and more loving toward people, what I need is my heart to be more in tune with him. 
what we're going to do is a little ex- experiment in just a moment because you know on, on Christmas Eve we have candlelight service I love it one of my favorite services the, the entire year and, and uh, we, we you know we send the fire marshal through the roof we got a, you know hundreds of candles and we light them all up and you illuminate this dark room with hundreds and hundreds of, of candles but that's not the real world uh, what that is that's the church in the church being the church but you know we don't all migrate to Fern Creek we don't all migrate to J-Town we don't all migrate to uh, to a particular neighborhood so it's not lit up like that but those neighborhoods those communities those uh, high schools at L campus it's shrouded in moral and spiritual darkness but it only takes a few lights to illuminate the darkness. I'm going to ask if you're if you're over in this section and you have one of those one of the candles, would you light it and just stand up for me all right over in here? Let's think of this as Fern, Fern Creek for just a moment. Light your candle and stand up for me. If you've got one, there we go. Thank you. It takes a moment to get those lights. You're not used to the lighters. When you're my age, you, could, you, you hold your phone up at the concerts now and, and go like this. And so it's a little bit different. Yeah, thank you very much. There you go. Thank you. Uh, Fern Creek. Uh, let's think of this as a, as a high school campus. These two, rows, these two sections right here. If you've got your candles, go ahead and light them and stand up for me. Just stand up for me. High school campus, a very dark place. I mean, it's, it's rather intimidating for a high school student to go onto a high school campus and to be a light. But you know what? It's kind of intimidating to do it at GE and UPS as well. So if you're over in these two, in these two areas, would you, would you light your, your candles for me and, and go ahead and stand up? Light your candles and, and stand up. And you go to UPS, you think, man, I, I'm the only person on this assembly, on this conveyor belt that, that believes in Jesus. And all I hear night in and night out is, uh, is maybe uh, the, the, the ring of profanity. Maybe you're on a rough shift. Not everybody works UPS like that, obviously, GE like that. But they're in moral and spiritual darkness. They're dark. The, the, the light of the gospel is been blinded by the God of this age and, and, let, and let's say you're right over here you're in the communities these two sections right around our church I mean stones throw from our church would you light your candles and just stand up for just a moment light your candles and stand up thank you very very much for doing that now I'm going to ask you to take the lights all the way down you see what's not real is when we're all in this room with lit candles and it illuminates the entire darkness it's, it's true when we're in this room but it's not true in the world Uh, we were watching House Hunters International. I don't think they're going to burn you, so we'll just leave you like this for just a moment. Last night, it's in Cuenca, Ecuador. Cuenca, Ecuador. That's where the Sills are. Dr. Sills leads, has led many teams uh, to Ecuador from our church. So they're in Cuenca, Ecuador, and House Hunters International. There's a few lights, a couple of lights from our own church in that, in that city. It's a dark city. It's no darker than Louisville. It's a dark city. There's a few lights there. Argentina, very dark place. We've got some people from our church in Argentina uh, lighting up the gospel. We've got some, we've got some people at GE. We've got people at UPS. Uh, we've got a lawyer and a doctor and a cashier and a plumber. 
who are going in dark places, serving in dark places, doing life in dark places, the neighborhoods we live in, we live in, unless we live in a Christian commune, we live in a dark place. You know, you might not be able to see like every person in the room had a candle like a Christmas Eve, but of all of us that are in here, we can see a few lights and there's something that draws us to those lights. There's something that, that if we needed to be able to see, we could make our way to a light. That's what it means to be the light of the world. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to turn the lights on. You can be seated. Thank you so much for doing that for me today. And so let me ask you this morning, let's, uh, let's amplify our voices just a little bit at a time. We're at different places. Some of us are very, very good at sharing our faith and others of us just aren't so good, but some of us can make cookies, cook hamburgers. Look for ways to just slowly ratchet up the gospel witness. It may be that you're here today and you'd even like to talk to someone about, about your spiritual life. We're going to invite you to come forward in a moment and we'll have some staff members here at the front. They'll introduce you to somebody that can, that can talk with you privately. Maybe you'd like to come down like family in the first service and said we're ready to, ready to sign on the dotted line. We're ready to become members here at 9th and O. get plugged in. Come on down and we'll, we'll make sure that, uh, that you know the process and, and the procedures about how to become fully engaged members here at, at 9th and O. Maybe as we're singing, we're going to stand and sing in a moment just after I pray. Maybe as we're singing and Craig leads us in song and, and we're singing, just stop and just think, okay, Lord, who's my, who could be one or two people, neighbor, coworker, family member, friend, who doesn't know Jesus, where I could slowly begin to raise the volume on the stereo of my life and move toward a gospel conversation. Or you just pray for us congregationally. Maybe you just stand and just say, Lord, we as a congregation need to shine more brightly and be more, be more vocal with our Christian witness. Would you stand and let me lead us in prayer? Craig's going to come and we'll, we will um, sing together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that what you say about us is true no matter what we think about ourselves or no matter what the world says about us. And you say, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so Father, in Jesus' name, make us very salty and make us an ever greater luminary in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.